Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Good morning. It's Memorial Day weekend, and uh, some of us have a long weekend. We get an extra day off and a good day to remember, think about those who... uh, served our country and paid the ultimate sacrifice for that. I know we have several here today who are veterans. We're thankful to you, but also remembering those who couldn't be with us today because they gave their lives on behalf of the country. Uh, if you have notes, that you, the note sheet this morning, I'm going to move along pretty quickly in some of the parts, and so you may want to just jot down some verses that I may not have time to fully read. But uh, we're in Acts chapter 5, so if you would open your Bibles there, we're beginning in verse number 17. I'm going to go through 42. I'm going to read all of those verses as we go through the message. I'm not going to read it at the beginning of the message. And uh, I've chosen as the title, Inspiring Monotony. Now, I, at the first service, some people said, okay, so are you going to inspire us to be monotonous? And no, I'm not inspiring you to be monotonous. Uh, some people thought, well, maybe the sermon is going to be very monotonous and you're going to speak in a monotone, but what you say will be inspiring and that's not the point either. Uh, the point is kind of that idea of contrast, a paradox, something that seems absurd and self-contradictory. It's something that you think, how could something be inspiring and monotonous at the same time. So let me illustrate it this morning maybe with a story from my own life that kind of uh, was triggered in my memory by Jerry a couple of weeks ago. Jerry mentioned uh, skydiving. He asked who had gone skydiving and Jennifer and I raised our hands and he quickly proceeded to say that he would never do it uh, but he shared the rules of a skydiving uh, place, a skydiving business in Punta Gorda, Florida. And uh, so I want to share a little bit about our experience skydiving. It happened about 10 years ago. Eight people from the church that uh, we were in decided we would, we would go jump out of a perfectly good airplane. So uh, we were going to Canyon City, Colorado. And uh, we made reservations, drove four hours, got to the Fremont County Airport. And airport is kind of a, a generous term. It's a, a runway with some dilapidated buildings around it. And so we, we drove up to the Colorado Mountain Skydive, and it was an old stucco building that had seen better days, a metal, uh, corrugated metal hanger next to it that... It looked like it hadn't been painted in many, many years. And then on the other side of it, there was this trailer. Uh, The trailer had seen better days as well. It was a travel trailer that wouldn't travel anymore because it was up on blocks. And uh, about the time we pulled up, a guy stepped out, a big burly guy. He, uh, you know, 200 pounds plus, grizzly beard, unkempt hair. It made me wonder, do they have running water in that trailer? Uh, he, his voice was hoarse. His face was red. He didn't look like he'd slept much that night. And he said, hey, uh, I'm Jocko. Good to have you here. Go on inside. They'll take care of you. So we went inside and there was about a half dozen people in there ready to help us with our experience. 
We signed waivers and showed our IDs. We paid a hundred bucks because there was a deal. And I always like a deal, even skydiving. Um, we got our goggles and well-worn overalls. I'm sure they didn't wash them between every use. And, uh, We watched a video. There's always safety videos. And this video lasted about six minutes. It seemed like about every 30 seconds they wanted to make this point. This is a dangerous activity that could result in serious injury and even death. They repeated it over and over and over. We finished the video, kind of waited around a little bit, got ready, and it was time to load the plane. So we harnessed up. And yes... Jocko was my parachutist in command. Two 200-plus-pound men strapped to one another is awkward. We loaded into the Cessna SOAT 206 with no door and took off. It began making the big circles, trying to climb up to 14,000 feet. The view of the Rockies was spectacular. The little town of Canyon City was so far away. And finally, it was time to go. Being a consummate gentleman, I let my wife go first. (laughs) After she jumped out and it looked like she made it okay, then I decided it was time for me to go. And so we rolled out of the plane, free fell for about two minutes. He pulled the chute. We floated down to earth. It was amazing. Jocko got me down safely. Now, for me, it was thrilling. It was exhilarating. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like this. My adrenaline was pumping. My heart was racing. For Jocko, it was one of several jumps that day. It was maybe jump 5,328 for his logbook. It was monotonous. But for me, it was inspiring and thrilling. So we're going to go through this passage today. And I want you to look at the contrasts that are in here. How one person would see it one way, one would see it a different. How maybe you could uh, uh, find that the monotony of amazing things happening over and over. You see, we've as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've been seeing that God is doing incredible things. We find this cycle of of God uh, of God's people proclaiming the gospel. And persecution arising, miracles being done, and people being saved. And then then it just seems like it starts all over again. And so as I prepared for today, it seemed like I was giving that wheel another spin. But it really is pretty incredible. So I hope that you will find how amazing this story is, rather than seeing something that seems like we've heard it before. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse number 17 we see uncontrolled confinement. Again, a paradox. Confinement should have some control to it. But in verse 17, it says, Then the high priests and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, (laughs) you notice there's an arrest, but the arrest didn't do anything. 
They're absolutely not under control of those who had arrested them. The high priest and the associates are jealous. They're filled with jealousy because in chapter number 4, we find God doing miracles. We find the, 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 the healing of a man who had, been, uh, who, who had not been able to walk. We see people marveling at the story. They're hearing the gospel in the name of Jesus being preached. And so they decide they have to control this situation. They have to make sure that that exactly what's going on here, and we'll see in the next section, that there was even more to it. There was a very personal reason why they wanted to control the situation. So the apostles are arrested, but during the night, the Lord releases them. This is the first time this happens. It actually happens three times that we're told of in the book of Acts. You may remember Paul and Silas in jail. They're singing and, and the jail is open to them. You remember when Peter was in jail and, and God opens the doors for him. This is the first one. And, and notice how verse number 19, just a really short verse. It almost seems like, like Luke is, is just telling something that was so monotonous, so routine. It says, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. No more explanation, no like, wow. But that's exactly what God was doing. So then we get to the next section and we find a baffling clarity. Because the disciples understand exactly what's supposed to be happening, but the Sanhedrin is clueless. Verse number 21, when the high priest and his associates arrived... They called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. I think this is a little funny because I have to tell you, I'm on the side of the apostles, in case you're wondering, and, uh, and the others are the bad guys. And so now they've sent for the apostles and they don't know what they're about to discover. So I love this. I I love irony. And so verse 22, but on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked and with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, The captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss. I love this next phrase, wondering what this might lead to. It's not wondering who who let them out. How did they get out? They're just going, where's this going? What's this going to lead to? What's the outcome of this going to be? They see that there are two forces moving forward in a collision course. So verse number 25, then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I have to be honest. If I had been arrested, 
for preaching the gospel and then been released from the jail, I think I would have been on the next plane out of town. I think I would have been on the next ship away from that city. I think I would have been on the next camel that took me away or something. I don't think that the place I would have been the next morning would be exactly where they had arrested me the first time. Publicly still proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this strange twist, those who were supposed to be in control had no idea what was going on. And someone else had to come and let them know that that their prisoners were back in the temple preaching. And so the Sanhedrin calls them together. The high priest stands up and he's supposed to be questioning. Verse number 27, he says to be questioned. But verse number 28 has no question. It's more of an implication. It's more inferred exactly why are you doing this? We gave you orders not to do it anymore. Why do you continue to do this? I don't really think they were wanting to understand why Jesus was so important to them, why Jesus was was this, this man that they couldn't stop talking about. I really think that the question that's implied is, why are you disobeying us? Why do you insist on getting us in trouble? Because you notice the very end of verse number 28, he says, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. James Boyce points out, at the trial of Jesus Christ, this was the very thing they had willingly taken upon themselves. Pilate had said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. In Matthew 27, they had replied, let his blood be on us and on our children. Now it was. And they were appalled at the consequences. So they are brought in front of the ruling group to be questioned. No question is asked. But then we find the apostles responding. And here is this contrast of those who are surrendered versus those who are livid at the situation. Same situation, two people. One group is absolutely so angry they want to kill them. The other group who is just surrendered to what God has. Beginning in verse number 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. That's a direct reference to them. That's a contrast to, you are not representing God. You do not stand in God's place. You are men, mere mortals. But God has given us orders. Verse number 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him in his own right, uh, to, onto his own right hand, as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
That's an amazing phrase. We're, we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. The Holy Spirit given to those who obey. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the man be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody. and About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the, in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. We must obey God rather than men. Their response infuriated them because they knew that that they were being considered less than God and they wanted to, to stand in the place of God. They knew that their actions and the skeletons in their closet were now coming to light and, and what they had done to Jesus was now, was now going to be seen by the people. The apostles' response references each member of the Trinity. Jesus, raised by the Father and attested to by the Holy Spirit. It's now become clear to the Sanhedrin that they cannot contain the apostles. And so Gamaliel, Gamaliel was the mentor of the apostle Paul. Maybe the Apostle Paul was somewhere in this crowd that day, I don't know. But his mentor stands and says, listen, there have been two other men who gathered people around them and both were killed. And after they died, their followers scattered. Hey, Jesus was killed. Now let's wait and see if his disciples, if his apostles, if his followers scatter. Just leave them alone. Well, his words brought them from the edge of the cliff, but not far enough to, to avoid them being flogged. So they're flogged, they're beaten, they're, they're brutally, uh, they're brutally, uh, 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 persecuted, they're ver- brutally hit. And, uh, verse number 41, they come out with joyful suffering, which again is a paradox. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. If you, have a, if you have a Bible that you underline or something, would you underline the words for the name? That's why. It's not because they loved suffering. It's not because they, they had a martyr's complex. It's because there was someone greater that they knew. And then verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. 
with fresh wounds on their backs and dried blood clinging to their clothes. After a night with very little sleep, the apostles walk out of the meeting rejoicing. The passage says that they, that they were rejoicing, that they were deemed worthy of suffering. That's an amazing statement. Because I have to say that I don't very often think of myself, am I worthy of suffering for Jesus Christ? Is my witness bold enough and strong enough to be worthy of suffering for Jesus Christ? And so they go right back into the temple court talking about Jesus, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pause for just a little bit here. As we get to the end of this story, I want to ask you, how do you feel about that? How does this story make you feel inside? Uh, Turn to the person next to you and just for about 30 seconds, uh, share with them the feelings that come up in you as you hear this story from the book of Acts. Okay, let's uh, take a few, a few of those ideas from you. How does this story make you feel? Somebody want to be the first? It's always the hardest. Somewhere, I see a, I, somebody's pointing to a hand somewhere. Just go ahead and speak up. I, I'm missing it. Inadequate. Okay, very good. Someone else? Challenged? Okay. Challenged. Somebody else over on this side? How does this story make you feel as you read it, as you, as you hear what God was doing and how they were responding? Confident. Okay, when you're, when you have the need, He will be there. Very good. Did I see another hand back here? Someone else? Anyone else? One more. Challenged. Okay, very good. I have to admit that I am humbled. I am, uh, I feel convicted because I look at my own life and where I stand in the gospel and, and the proclamation of the gospel. And, and I wonder why is it that our experience is often very different from this experience? And I think as we come to the end of our application, I, I think we may see some of that and, and I see that in my own life. So let's come around and let's consider a few practical applications to what we've read this morning. And we want to be careful because the book of Acts is, is a historical book. It's stories. They're telling what happened. And we have to be careful that uh, we don't take what happened in one moment and make that prescriptive. Uh, another way to say it is, don't make the descriptive prescriptive. In other words, to make you think that's how it has to be. Here's an example. In uh, Acts chapter 5 and two other times, uh, God came and opened the jail. But when Paul was arrested and put in prison, the jail wasn't opened for him. So we have to be careful to think, okay, if I'm ever put in prison, God's going to open the jail doors for me and I'm going to get to walk out. That may or may not be the case. So as we, as we apply the passage this morning, we want to be careful that our application is biblical and correct. But I do think that there are some, some ideas, some principles that we can pull from this. Number one, 
The stories of Acts challenge our natural paradigms. We have some ideas, we have some frameworks in our lives that are very natural. For example, God's blessings result in comfort and personal pleasure. When life is going well, God's blessing. And what happens when life is not going well? Oh, God, why did you do this to me? What did I do to deserve this? True? That's very natural. It's something that happens all of the time. But if you look at this passage, life was going very difficultly for the apostles. But God was blessing. So it it kind of destroys and makes us rethink those paradigms and realize, listen, we can't translate, we can't view or, or determine where God is at just based on circumstances. We can't determine, is God in this or against this because the Sanhedrin is against us or because we've been thrown in jail. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Suffering does not mean necessarily judgment. Persecution is not a clear indication that God is against you. Tertullian was an early Christian author. He lived a hundred years after the stories of Acts. He was born and died in Carthage in what is now Tunisia. And uh, in northern, on the northern coast of Africa. And in response to persecution, he said, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. So here's another one. Uh, a second idea, a paradigm. And that is that the expansion of the gospel requires careful marketing and winsome arguments. If the world is going to accept the gospel, it has to be because we, we present it in just the right way and we, we make sure that they feel right about the way we present it. And, uh, you know, if we market it and package it, just so, then they will accept the gospel. But I don't see that happening here. I don't see that happening in on the day of Pentecost. I don't see that over and over. Here they said, you know what? In, on the day of Pentecost, they said, you are guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a very difficult, very challenging. Because the power of the gospel is in the message of the gospel itself and the power of the Holy Spirit behind it, not in our arguments and not in our marketing and not in the way we present it. It's Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, just jot these down. Acts 2, 41 and 47. In chapter 6, verse number 1, we find the church rapidly expanding as a result of very clear, direct proclamation of the truth of the gospel. In Isaiah 61, we find the prophecy of Jesus being anointed to preach the gospel. And in Luke chapter 4, we find that actually repeated by Jesus. And he says these words in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit 
Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's a, there's an intrinsic tie between the filling of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery for, of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Acts chapter 4 verse 31 says, When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the place was shaken, and they spoke the word of God boldly. So here's another, here's another practical application. Number one, uh, the, the stories should help shape our paradigms, our thoughts, should help shape our reference and our perspective. Number two, the stories of Acts give us principles for navigating a culture that opposes Christ in the gospel. We live in a world that is against Jesus. People are uninvited from praying at public events if they pray in the name of Jesus. Just that. The name of Jesus is divisive in our current culture. In our current culture, uh, the ideas of, of restricting people or saying that homosexuality is a sin or that abortion is wrong and it is killing an innocent life uh, have become very unpopular and, and it's considered hate speech often. So how do we navigate that? How do we step into that world? Well, the apostles were living in a world very similar to that. The issues were different but the opposition to Christ was the same. And so we can walk through the book of Acts and see, let's take a model. I love how the Bible gives us models and patterns. Not just the teaching, but it shows us how they lived it out and how they could stand boldly for the truth in those days. Number three, the stories of Acts show us that our responses can rise above our circumstance. The entire passage is a display of failed persecution. Arrested, but they got released. Questioned and charged and then flogged, but they didn't stop. It was incredible because in the end, they rejoice that they get to suffer for Jesus. Is this what we see today? Could it be that maybe our evangelism is anemic and that believers seem insipid because our perspective is more about our circumstances than it is about who we serve? The apostles would not be silenced. They knew of nothing more significant than to preach Jesus to their world, whether it was in houses, in the temple court, or to the Sanhedrin. It's the same calling you and I have, to proclaim the message of redemption that has so powerfully rescued you and I from eternity without Christ. You see, the key to this passage, the the, the central element of all that is going on here is not persecution. The central element of this passage is not the release from prison, a miracle. The the central 
focus of the passage is not even actually that they were rejoicing in suffering. The central focus of the whole passage is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, front and center. Because when God builds his church, he builds it on the person of Jesus. Not just in a, in a theoretical sense, but that he is the center of all that we do and why we do what we do. You see, often we try to get excited about the gospel and evangelism because we, we build a program or we build a plan or we, or we build a better presentation. But until Jesus Christ becomes everything to us, He becomes someone that we, we are so enamored with and that we have seen His power so radically affect us and His gospel change us, not just in salvation, but even in our daily lives now as believers, then it's just, if you'll excuse my, my words, it's just kind of a sales pitch. But that's not what the apostles had. The apostles had seen Jesus and they couldn't stop talking about what, who he was. And so it is built on Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, it says, So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one that relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Does that sound like prophecy of what happened in Acts chapter 5? Here, first in Ephesians chapter 2, it kind of brings it together. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, that's you and I, The whole building is joined together and rises to become the holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. We started with the, with the phrase inspiring monotony. Has the fact that Jesus is with you and in you and you are in Him, that God in flesh, went to a cross and hung there for you, has that become monotonous? Has that become so routine and so everyday that it no longer inspires you to proclaim His message to the world? I believe that God's word for us today is to learn from their example To learn to respond to suffering as they did, to learn to view opposition as they did, to learn to be courageous as they were, but mostly to just say, Jesus, help me see you as you are. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.